So I, I'm pretty sure we know this from life, but when we start reading our Bibles, we see it all over the place. We see it in Genesis right away that Adam and Eve get kicked out of the Garden of Eden and they dwell east of Eden. And do you guys remember what guards the way? Uh, I know. Angel swords, flames. A flaming sword that, it, that this detail says it's flashing back and forth. I just read this Bible and I, I see science fiction everywhere. I'm talking about you won't, you won't, you won't. I mean, that's a detail. Why is it not just a wall? No, it's a flaming sword. There's the, the way back home is blocked. And, and, and so you get this impression that from the beginning, Adam and Eve are like refugees. And we read that story, and if we're reading it correctly, we're reading about us. And, and if we're reading it correctly, we, we actually long for Eden. So in the New Testament, the theme is continued, where Peter says, you get, we're, we're, we're strangers, we're exiles, we're to spend our time here living in reverent fear, and we're not to make this, this world our home. Hebrews says the same thing. It's this, it's this theme that we're not home yet. Or Paul even puts it this way. He describes these bodies as tents. We're camping. I don't know how many people, we like camping a little while, but we want to go home. And Paul says our whole life on earth, even though this is the only life we've ever known, we know this ain't home. And we, we, in our bones, we miss a home we ourselves didn't personally experience. But I have a theory that birds know how to migrate without their parents teaching them. Fish know the way back up to the stream they're from without being taught. I don't, that's craziness. And humans have a longing for a home that our ancient ancestors got to live in briefly. And the thing that made that home home, most of all, yes, it was the perfect relationship with, with Adam and Eve. Yes, it was the relationship with work where it wasn't by the sweat of the brow and weeds and thistles. Yes, there was no death. But the thing that made it home most of all was the father walking in the cool of the day. And he wasn't walking because he needed exercise. He was walking. Come, walk with me. Walk with me. Friendship with our Creator. Relationship with our Creator was, is, that's truly home. That's home. And, and we, we all, we all miss it. We all long for it. And in Jesus, this is the Christian gospel, that God's solution is not poor, kill the rich, and overthrow, French Revolution. God's solution is not men and women are at odds. Women have to rise up, burn their bras, and take the power back. God's, right? Even though Genesis says men and male-female relationships are messed up, God's solution is not the poor kill the rich, although the scripture shows that there's some tension between the classes of people, but God's solution is not, just fill in the blank with whatever our culture is currently running after as the solution. God's solution will address all the other little solutions. It'll fix all that stuff, but his solution is Jesus Christ dying on the cross rising from the dead, and rebuilding a new heavens and new earth 
that's without cancer, without enmity, without conflict, without sin, and we're going to be there with him. That's, that's our expectation. We're not there yet. We long for it. So, but, but here's the weird thing. That, that was point one. We miss home. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on those who receive Jesus. And it says the Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Y'all know the verse I'm talking about? It's about three different passages where Paul says on the one, one time he says it's a deposit. Well, when I was a kid, we used to take glass soda cans. We used to take them back. Because this was apparently a, de- it was like you, there was a deposit on it. I, I can't remember. It was some weird thing where, yeah, 10, 10 cents, 25 cents. As a kid, it was more. We also used to recycle aluminum cans. But the, the glass cans, it was almost like they increased the price. The glass bottles, I'm sorry. They would increase the price with the assumption that you were going to return them and they would be refilled and reused. Good, good memories. Good memories. Do you ever shoot a BB gun anymore? See, you start with nothing, take a walk, get some bottles, and get some candy and some BBs. So Paul says the Holy Spirit is a deposit that guarantees what's to come, but he also says it's, it's like a foretaste. It's, it's a little piece of what's coming. My, my phrase would be that it's, it's kind of like an appetizer. So, so we have these, we're not home yet, we're longing for home, we have the promise that we're going to get there and God's going to restore this thing home, but as long as we're on this side, we're not home. But we have little tastes. Sometimes, sometimes when we're praying to the Lord, we feel like we're in heaven. Sometimes when we're singing to the Lord together as, as the body of Christ, we feel like we're already in heaven. We feel like we're home. Sometimes when we lay hands on the sick and they recover, we wish it happened every time, don't we? But sometimes we lay hands on the sick, and it's like, because there's going to be no sickness in heaven, so sometimes they're healed. It's like heaven comes from God's perfect future and just makes a little on earth. It's like heaven, just a little taste of heaven. Hebrews talks about those who have tasted of the powers of the coming age. That he's questioning, I don't know, what if they fall away? Is, are they even going to be, is it going to be possible to bring them back to repentance? But my, my focus on reference that verse is not the falling away piece, but he calls the presence of God, the Spirit, tasting, drinking of the, the powers and the spiritual gifts, the powers of the coming age. It's like when we'll be able to work like we did in the garden without sweat. Right now, every day, we get up and we work. We earn our food by the sweat of our brow. Look, I don't care if you work in an office. Your office has different forms of sweat. I would rather work with literal sweat than with office sweat. Some people would prefer to work with office sweat. You know, what I'm talking about office drama. He said, she said, and just the managerial stuff. I would, I would rather work with physical sweat sometimes. Pastoring has sweat of the brow, but it's not usually literal sweat. 
Every job, though, has literal sweat. I'm sorry, every job has sweat and every job has thistles because we're not home. But there are times when God's presence and God's peace and God's power gives us these little appetizers of home. But that's the wrong word, isn't it? Because the stuff God gives us now for the now isn't really appetizers. You can't, you don't live on appetizers, right? Jim Gaffigan said, it's really hard to explain what food is like when you're a Westerner, when you're, when you're talking to someone who's from a culture where they just barely have enough food to eat. He goes, have you tried to explain the concept of an appetizer to someone who's lucky to get one small meal a day? What's an appetizer? Oh, that's the food we eat before we eat the food we're going to eat. And what's this other thing? The dessert? Oh, that's the food we eat after we eat the food that we were going to eat. What's this doggy bag? Oh, that's when we take the food that we couldn't even handle eating. We just take it back and give it to our dog. The dog? So it's it's really hard. Jim does it funnier because he has all of his funny little voices, too, that he does. But, but the, the, what I'm calling an appetizer, that's a bad metaphor for the things God pours on us because the truth is you don't live on appetizers, but we live by what God's giving us in this tent, in this imperfect world. We live by it. There's this scene in The Matrix. I know I reference this movie a lot, and it's, just, it's almost impossible for me not to reference the movie. Not the new one. I haven't even watched the new one because my, my friends have said it's trash and it ruined the legacy. There's a scene. So in The Matrix, right, the, the machines, the, in, in the movie The Matrix, the machines have created this fictional world. They plugged all the humans in and they're programming their brains and they're keeping humans as slaves. It's a metaphor for the spiritual condition of, of life in a fallen world. And so Neo gets rescued out of The Matrix. So he's actually awake. He can see what it is. Then he's sort of trained a little bit, and they send, they send a few of them back in on, on sort of his first mission back. And he's driving in a car inside the Matrix, the unreal world. And he looks over, and there's a noodle restaurant that he remembers eating at time after time. One of his, his, he goes, man, I used to love eating there. They have great noodles. And he goes, I have all these memories from my life, but none of them were real. None of them happened. What does that mean? Like, our whole life happened in a fallen world. And so many of the, the events of our life that we're trying to look to to tell us who we are and what our life means are in a fallen world. What does that mean? And Trinity sitting next to him, she says, it means that the matrix cannot tell you who you are. We live by the manna. We're no longer in Egypt. We don't live by the Nile. We no longer live by what's from below. We no longer live by what's natural, you know, what our eyes can see, what everyone else lives by. We, We put our trust in the invisible God who feeds us supernaturally with manna on the ground because the world around us is a desert. It doesn't look like a desert. It doesn't. It looks like it's full of options and entertainment and relationships and, ooh, fun experiences, the pleasures of sin. And the endless options of distraction of the modern world. And by the way, we think it's a billion times worse because of the phones. Maybe it is. 
But every generation that I've ever read has talked about the world being this tantalizing, sensory overload, sensual, come buy this, do this, believe this, take this. And that the world itself has always been like a circus for the, for the flesh that has deceived anyone who said, okay, like a fish just going right after that, that lure. So I know the smartphones and the internet has done something. It really has. And I don't, but I don't know to what extent it's fundamentally different than every other generation because the world's always been the world. Always. And then the world can't tell us who we are. But, but we have this, what do we live by, guys? He humbled us 40 years in the, in the wilderness and fed us manna to teach us what? Deuteronomy 8. That man... Shall not, but by every word that present tense proceeds, not proceeded. He's not even talking about what he said. He's talking about what he's saying. Doesn't exclude the Bible. It means the Bible itself becomes a living present voice. We live by our Father's voice in in the middle of a fallen world. Our manna. We no longer live by the Nile. We, We. I keep coming back to that theme week after week, don't I? It's fresh to me. We no longer live by what's natural, by what our eyes can see, and by what makes sense to our mind. We live by our Father's voice. And it looks tempting, but it's like we're in the ocean. You can't drink salt water. It makes you thirstier. You're surrounded by water, but you can't have a drink because it'll kill you faster. And that's our situation. We don't live by the matrix. It can't tell us who we are. We live by the manna. We live by the voice of our Father. So it's not really an appetizer. We actually live by it. It right now, it's our food. It's not just a little appetizer. On the other hand, it's not the fullness, is it? Because like now I know in part. But then I'll know fully. And, and some of us want to be so done with the process. And some of us are so convinced that it should be easier than this that we're actually talking ourselves into a a mindset that isn't going to serve us well. We have to arm ourselves with a willingness to suffer. Not think that everyone around us must be doing awesome, but I alone am really struggling. That's a normal thought process. We look over here and we go, he seems okay, she seems okay, I'm struggling. What's wrong with me? No, no, no. She's struggling, he's struggling. Everybody's got fights going on. A lot of them. Sometimes they're over them. Sometimes it feels like they're under them. But everybody's fighting stuff. And we don't serve, serve ourselves well when we imagine everyone else is almost like they're already in heaven. But I'm here just struggling, man. I'm just struggling. That's not helpful. See that next point? It ain't easy. So when we set our clock for 15 minutes, which is a little, just a little prayer tool that sometimes we, we do, just set the clock 15 minutes and sit with Jesus and don't, you don't even try to pray. You just sit, just be. It's amazingly hard. <laughs> you'd think it's, you'd think, oh, 15, that sounds wonderful. Well, maybe it is. Sometimes you sit there for 15 minutes trying to think about Jesus yeah. and all the other stuff. <laughs> Money, <laughs> kids, people, <Yeah>. stuff. 
the dog, whatever. Stuff, 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 stuff. Oh, my word. And then you keep just returning to Jesus. I find it really helpful to say out loud, it ain't easy. John and I were talking about fasting the other day. And he's like, <laughs> and that's, that's what I said. I said, uh, it's, it actually hurts. And I don't know why they call it fasting at all. They should call it slowing because it's, <laughs> yeah, right. my brain moves slow. My body moves slow. Time moves slow. <laughs> when will I be able to eat? <laughs> you know, it ain't easy. But to, to, when you expect that it's going to be like heaven comes down, I'm going to fast. I'm going to hear God's voice so clear. It's going to be like angels are going to kiss my, I'm going to feel the, the angel kisses the eyelids of heaven just fluttering. I'm just going to feel so close to God. Maybe that'll happen. Sometimes that happens. But if I'm like that, that has to happen. And then we fast to make it happen and it doesn't happen. It actually did something really good and healthy. But now my expectation is tempting me to be like mad and feel like a failure or ticked at God or ticked at you for having a good experience of fasting. It's so helpful to arm ourselves with the reality that we're not home. It's really helpful. And you're normal. It's normal to kind of struggle. Um, to kind of struggle. It's normal. Yeah. If you have no struggles, I would probably... <laughs> okay, let me see. How would, what would I assume? I would probably assume that there's stuff you're not telling me. You know what I mean? If you're like, I have no struggles. I'm always happy. Actually, there was one guy I met that was like that. Liar. Well, there was one guy I met where I walked up to him and I said... They were preaching hardcore, and he works for a funeral home, so sometimes he's got to answer the phone. Yeah. There's one guy, and I walked up to him, and I said, I said, do you ever get depressed? And he goes, no, I don't even know what that word means. That doesn't even make sense to me. I said, do you ever get frustrated with people? He says, no. I believed him, so I got even more frustrated. Um, I said, do you ever get discouraged? Discouragement is like, that's my battle. Like, I don't struggle with, like, lust is not my battle. I know there's a book that says it's every man's battle. It's not my battle. I'm sorry, guys. Like, I'm really blessed in that area. My battle's discouragement. Mm. Uh. I, I don't even like admitting it. So did he answer that yes? He said he doesn't even relate to the question. And I, and I went home mad. <laughs> mad at him. And that's not, which is, no, he wasn't lying. But here's the deal. Here's, the, here's what I was doing that was not helpful. I looked at where I wasn't and got discouraged and frustrated. Instead of looking at where he was and getting excited about where I'm growing into. And I got so mad at him. <laughs> you got to go? Awesome. Thank you. Bless you. Bless him, Lord. Get him. Sicker. Get her. Cut it from the recording if I put this online. Sometimes I don't put anything online from Wednesday. Um, finish that thought. I mean, just don't even finish the thought. End that. Okay. Trophies ruin art. Trophies ruin art. They did this study that said they, they let little kids just paint and draw and color. Right? Just paint, draw, and color. And the kids were like, woohoo! And they got really into art. They really enjoyed the art. Now, this is done by people who are studying and they have notebooks and probably white 
you know, coats on and, and glasses down on like there and, you know what I mean? Really serious people doing studies. But the kids are just chilling and having fun. Probably were bald with beards. Probably, probably. Yep. No. It wasn't me. I didn't do the study. And, and then they changed the thing. They didn't just let them play with having art. They were loving, the kids were loving the art. Then they changed it. And they started rewarding the best picture with, like, I don't remember if it was money or if it was a trophy, but it was some sort of reward for excellence. Next thing you know, the kids that didn't get the award were upset and discouraged. And the kids that got the reward, if they won it one time but not the next time, it was like the interest in the art for everyone just dropped way down. Isn't that interesting? There's something when we... Say it again. It's their reasoning, their focus. Why they were doing it for fun, and then it became yeah. a competition. Yeah. And ruined it. Competition, man. I'm not sure how competition... This is why I don't like those singing shows, like American Idol and stuff. I'm like, since when was music a competition? That's weird. I mean, we did discover some fun artists along the way, and the shows themselves are entertaining. They started doing was a new thing, and um, I'm a B. I'm a B student, B person. And if you, depending on where you were in the, you know how well your grades were. So then, we always, my mom always said, you'd rather be at the top of the bottom pile than to the bottom of the top pile. Do you know what I mean? When you started splitting it out like that, mm. same same thing. I would just quit and walk out. My sister played piano, and then I, they tried to have, make me play piano lessons, but she was better than me, so I played guitar. High five to the quitters. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, but same I thing. Mean, just pivot. I'll take the guitar. You keep the piano. My dad bought a guitar, and I was like, no, nah, can't play the guitar. So I looked at my sister. Buy me a racing guitar. A what? A racing go kart. I'll do better. That isn't. That isn't even the same. Oh, <laughs> what it is! A racing go kart. He's like. Better at, <laughs> I'm better at racing. Than the I sound of engines is your music. Yep. Sure <laughs> There you go. I want to know what they're talking about over there. Competition. Competition. Oh, yeah. Now, there's some things in life that it, competition makes everyone strive better. But the point here on, on, this, on this trophies ruin art thing isn't 100% sincere. But what I am saying is when they did it for love of the art, when they made the art and it was just about loving the process, it, they actually made progress. They got better and better. And if they had kept them just feeding their love of the doing... Instead, they got their eyes off of the doing and onto some goal out there. Some, some goal divorced from the doing. Something way down over there. Right? I, I often wonder if... How do I say this the right way? If we, if we, if we really settle into the goodness of God... We'll live in such a manner that we're ready for the Lord's return. But if we're fixated on getting the heck out of here, 
and we want the Lord to return. We might live in such a way that when he returns, we're not quite ready. There's something about learning how to be here and in this process. I'm not home yet, but, but I'm not so fixated on heaven and then in the future that I miss this. I don't, I'm not sure how to say what I'm trying to say, but when they were about the process of the art, the kids loved it. And when they got fixated on winning and losing and whether it was good enough or not good enough, they lost love. They, they fell out of love with art. This is why I enjoy the pain at the top there. If my goal in my fit, I, I work out. Sometimes I jog, I jog, I try to work out every day in some form or another. Now my goal, I don't have like a, an exact, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna make my body look just like this. That's not, I don't have that in, you know, and I don't have a specific weight I'm aiming at because I'm not on a diet. I've never seen anyone go on a diet and felt good about it. Anytime someone tells me they're on a diet, I go, uh-oh. You know why? That means they're enduring a whole lot of pain because of some future goal they have over there. As soon as they get there, it's not going to satisfy. What we actually have to do is we have to fall in love with the pain and the process of making the art. We have to fall in love with the pain and the process of pushing ourselves to have a lifestyle of health and work out. We got to, instead of, like if, if, I, if I only develop a prayer life because I have an anger problem, that's so goal-driven that I don't actually have a real prayer life. Because a real prayer life is, the point of a prayer life is not to ask God questions and get God to do stuff. We know this. God is the point of a prayer life. The joy of knowing Him. The give and take. And, and so we got we to learn to enjoy the pain. If you learn to enjoy the art, that means you're also going to enjoy the pain of the art. My, when I first started preaching, it would be Saturday night, and my wife would say, how are you feeling about the sermon? And I'd say, this is going to be the worst sermon I've ever preached. I'm in total despair, and I've been working on this all week, and this is just, I feel absolutely atrocious. And she'd say, well, scrap that and preach something else. And I'd go, you understand nothing. I said, you don't understand the artist's journey. This is the artist's journey. Oh, this is awesome. That's step one. Oh, this is crap. That's step two. Oh, I am crap. That's step three. Step four, I guess this is okay. Step five, this is awesome. You cannot get in my process and betray me by agreeing with my despair. You have to learn to embrace that whole scary grueling mess because it's a whole package. It, can't, it has to be taken as a whole package. If we're going to know Jesus, Paul says, I am so in love with Jesus, bring on the suffering. If suffering gets me closer to you, I will learn to enjoy the suffering. I will learn to lean into it. I won't flee it. I'm going to lean into it. We've got to fall in love with every day doing something that helps form calluses in our soul. Like if I stop playing the guitar as soon as it hurts my fingers, that's, I need it to hurt. I need to lean into the hurt every day, play enough that my fingers hurt 
Then calluses form. Then I can really, now I can begin to navigate this thing. We've got to kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm making up metaphors here. But we've got to, we, we're not home. But what we got is tastes of home. And in the midst of this world, the best we can do is learn to live in this place with our God who is our home. Finish the sentence yourselves, because I don't have it. All right, aim low. Now, that sounds backwards, doesn't it? They tell you to aim high. Join the Air Force. That's not a good advice. Is it Space Force? <laughs> That's true. Space is a little high. No, that's not. No, that's bad dating advice. <laughs> that's my old joke. Is is a? Uh, oh no, it was one of my buddies from college. He said, uh, "Mom always said to me, uh, if at first you don't succeed, lower your standards." <laughs> and then, and then I was like, "Wow, your mom's terrible." <laughs> you know, like that's the worst. You know. And then he's like, "Okay, guys, she didn't really say that." The, the problem with most of us when it comes to trying to make our lives better is we try to take the entire pizza into our mouth at one time. I'm going to change my whole life. I will not be any, there will be no negativity coming out of my mouth ever again starting right now. Okay, that's, that's not, that you're aiming so high that you're guaranteed to fail quickly and then you'll become discouraged and you'll probably do, you'll just, you have to aim low enough that what that the thing you're you're trying to do is actually possible, achievable, Achie- sustainable, and achievable. So, there, what can you do that will make that will get you closer to God, healthier, happier, holier, less worried? That baby steps. What is what's within your reach? Because if we aim too high, it won't be sustainable, and we'll fall off the wagon again. And nobody wants to fall off the wagon and bump their head. Either. We have fallen off the wagon enough. Yeah. All of us have fallen off the wagon enough. Like, like I say, like, if you understand the nature of addiction, you understand Uh-oh. the nature of all sin because it all works the same. Oh, yeah. So if, like, this is a can-do gospel, but my dad said a thing that I thought was really kind of dark. He said, people can change. And now you're like, yeah, that's Christian. But not much. And it takes a long time. And I was like, oh, this got sadder and sadder as your sentence continued. <laughs> but actually, the little difference that makes the difference. Let's say a couple comes to me and they're like furious with each other. <laughs> Never happens. It's totally theoretical. <laughs> happens too much, but yeah. And I've never been there myself. We're sinless over at the Miller household. (laughs) If he and she are thinking we're going to fix this today, they're going to be even more frustrated tomorrow when it has hardly changed much at all. So again, but if we aim low enough, what can we do that will make the slightest bit of difference? That's sustainable, that we can do long-term the rest of our life. Again, I'm not, don't tell me you're going on a diet. That means you're temporarily going to eat less and be really ticked off and frustrated and grumpy and hungry and hangry and miserable 
And then next Christmas, you're going to gain it all back in a flurry of homemade sugar cookies and stuff. It's going to be a mess. Or whatever fried foods you gorge yourself on. Stan's like, just let me at them shrimp. Did you say all? It doesn't seem low enough. It doesn't seem like you're aiming low enough. So, so what Stan started to do was walk every day. Just a little. He started little. But because what he did was possible, it was sustainable. And then it started to work. His weight came down just a little at a time. And the more his weight came down, the easier the walking got. How far are you up to right now? That's amazing. Blind man walking down the road. That's amazing. Well, that's more resistance. Walking in the pool, get your hamstrings all jacked up. Yep. But it's sustainable. And you're leaning into the, to the hurt. Right? It, it, this is not fun. And what happens to your sense of self every time you, make, you do it? You be, I'll just tell you what I mean. You become a person you can respect. When you, don't, when you see yourself indulge in sin and make the bad choices... You know God's always watching, but here's another person who's always watching you. You. Yeah. Like, your conscience is not the voice of the Lord. Your conscience is the voice of the true you. So it's possible that you and the Lord, your conscience and the Lord don't agree on everything. Like, he might have forgiven you, but you haven't forgiven you. But when you start to do the little right things, when nobody's watching, that hurt, you start to become a person who respects yourself. It's amazing. It, it really is. And the little, just the little right, just the little right thing. The little right, the thing that's low, aim low enough you can do it. And it builds, it builds momentum. It start, you start to become addicted to doing the hard right thing. And then you start to lean into it. It's like, like when I'm crawling up in my crawl space, in the attic, sorry. I'm up in the attic and I'm straddling some rafters. And I'm putting some recessed light in there. And it's so hot. What is wrong with me? And there's sweat dripping off my nose. And I'm like, this hurts. And then I drop the screw. <laughs> and I yell out in my pain, we're doing it. Because I'm not mad that I'm in that pain. I put myself there. I went up there to embrace the suck. Sorry for the language. That's true. That's, That's true. the point. And if that becomes a lifestyle, we, we start to become a person we believe. Now when we're at church and we're saying, I love you, Jesus, we actually believe we mean it. Mm-hmm. Now when we get down on our knees in the morning and we say, Lord, take my life, we believe it. Now when we go back and apologize for exaggerating because the Holy Spirit said, you stretched the truth. You meant well, but you stretched the truth. Why would I have to go back? It's just embarrassing. It's embarrassing to be that picky in my conscience. Why, everyone else is okay with little white lies. They know I didn't mean it. Go back and eat a little humble pie. <sighs> you don't want to do it, and it's, an, it's actually embarrassing to have such a stingy Holy Spirit conscience. But then you go back and you do it anyway, and you're embarrassed and you're blushing. 
And then you leave that thing and you're like, I am the kind of person who obeys the Lord. It's so important that we become the kind of people we can respect. Otherwise, if everyone else respects us, it won't matter. We can't receive. We can't receive anybody else's love because it can't get through the wall of me. I don't believe it. I'm just, they believe my lies. You see what I'm saying? That even becomes a wall against receiving the Lord's love. So now we're like, Lord, I know you love me, but that's your job and you have to. The truth is, I'm disgusting. But when we start to make those little baby steps of integrity, it does, it just breaks open little access points. And all the Lord's love needs is a little access point. I saw these surfers in California. There's these, there's these rivers that just sort of form these temporary little ponds right by the ocean whenever it rains, and they just, this pond fills up. And they go in there with a little shovel, and they dig the tiniest little trench, and it starts to drain out into the ocean. In five minutes, it's like a dangerous waterfall-style river, and they're in there with their little boogie boards trying to surf it. But all it takes is the tiniest little bit to form, and it starts to erode and open more and more and more. We want to, I know we talk about don't give the devil a foothold, but sometimes I've told people in life to give the Lord a foothold. And even though you're still, man, it's like somebody confides in me, I'm having an affair with my boss. Dude, I don't want to know that. I don't, I don't even, that's so heavy, I don't even want to know it. Now I'm like in grief. And I've given people advice. If you're going to give the devil that strong of a foothold, I need you to give the Lord a foothold. I need you to keep talking to the Lord, no matter how painful. I need you to keep coming to church, no matter how painful. Let the Lord have a fighting chance with your soul. It's just stuff like that. It's so hard. But I know if you give the Lord an inch, we often talk about, oh, you give the devil an inch, he's going to take a mile. So will the Father. You know, how many of you are here right now because you gave the father an inch? And he just kept saying, I'll take that. I'll take that. Come in deeper. Come in a little deeper. And then you trusted him more. And then you believed his love more. And then you went a little deeper. All right. Construction worker, Jesus. So we know Jesus is 12 years old at the temple. And then we know Jesus is like 30 years old in the waters of the baptism. And the Holy Spirit comes down and he starts ministry. What the heck did he do? <laughs> For the other 18 years, right? Well, in Mark, which is it, Mark 5? Mark 4. Mark 4. Right in the beginning of Mark 4, they call him a construction worker, a carpenter. They don't call him the carpenter's son. Isn't he the carpenter? That's what they say. In Matthew, they say the carpenter's son. Interesting. He was a full human, right, guys? So he got up early, went to work in the hot sun. Did he ever get sawdust in his eye? We're speculating, I admit it. They probably did. Probably his thumb a couple times. We're speculating, but I'm just... I'm pretty sure it passed gas. Okay, well, maybe. Yeah, we don't need to start with that, but okay, yeah. yeah. Stub toe, I'll go with that, yeah. I mean, hey, he was all human. So totally human. Worked at, nobody knew he was the son of God, right? Yeah. In fact, he was so normal. He was living such a normal human work a day. Blue collar, right? Yep. Was he a rabbi? Well, 
Did he go to rabbinical school? Did he go to seminary? Was he in special training from the time he was 12? Because that's when they picked him. No. He was, a, he was blue collar. Jesus, our Savior, the creator of the universe, blue collar. The word actually is techno, tech, tecton. It means he worked with stone and wood. Construction worker. That's hard work. That must mean that surely means if he never sinned and he walked with the Father perfectly his whole life, that must mean that construction work, regular work, raising babies, normal stuff, not spiritual stuff, not preacher and missionary, regular jobs are worship. If we're doing them with the Father. So for 18 years, Jesus made every one of our normal jobs sacred. I mean, they were already sacred, but he proved them sacred. And, and don't you think, and this is Tim speculating, and I'm allowed to speculate a little as long as I don't go beyond Scripture, but don't you think that's where he learned all the stuff he taught later? Can you imagine Jesus as a builder trying to figure out how to support his family and having a conversation with the Father, and the Father says, Consider the birds. They don't store away in barns. They don't. The Father feeds them. I feed them. I'm going to take care of you, Jesus. I'll take care of your mom. I'll take care of your brothers. I got you guys. I'm speculating. I'm speculating. I admit it. But don't you think those 18 years just working construction was where he got his teaching? He says, when they say, where did you get your teaching? He says, the Father. Everything I'm saying, I got it from my father directly. Right? Every other teacher just quoted a whole bunch of footnotes and scholars and papers, and it was like, he just said, God, my father says, or actually, he starts his sermons by saying, I tell you the truth, and then he just says it. Why, what authority do you do these things? I'm just telling you what my father... This is spirituality with dirt under the fingernails. This is what I'm, this is what I'm saying. Like, we've, we envision that, that if... if if we're going to live in this fallen world, like we want so much power of the Holy Spirit that like, it's like pain-free, just like superhero life. Blast me with more of your Holy Ghost, Father. And I'll, I've actually prayed this. Like I want to be that monk that like while the joy comes on me, I float around the sanctuary. Like I'm not on the ground. I could fly. Because there's a story about a monk named, what was his name? Hilarious or something like that? Hilarious. That'd be the perfect name. The dude would laugh too much when he'd get filled with the Holy Ghost. And then the, the, sto- the tradition says, and I'm going to say that, I don't know if it happened, but the tradition says that he'd float around the sanctuary and they were like ticked at him. They were like, come down and shut up. we got chores to do. That's my speculation on that, but cut that out of the podcast. But I want that stuff sometimes. You know what I mean? I'm like, oh, yeah. But that's, that's not Jesus for 18 years of his life. Dirt under the fingernails, sweat, reg- totally regular life is already filled a normal human life is so stinking full of miracles. And I don't mean miracles like raising the dead and all, and all that, and opening blind eyes. I mean the miracle of a tree frog and the dew on the grass in the morning and every stinking beautiful sunset you've ever seen. The fall first thing this morning. Absolutely. At Crickets. 
as irritating as they can be. Tree frogs as irritating as they can be. Children laughing can be both wonderful and maddening. Go ahead. I love tree frogs. I love the sound of tree frogs. It's just something peaceful about it. Until just it's three in the morning. Them. No, <laughs> just listening to them. I mean, I could literally fall asleep. If I was sitting outside, I could fall asleep to the sound of tree frogs. We chased one down the other day. We kept hearing it. And I said, where is that thing? It was in a storm grate. It was like down in the storm grate. We literally had to put our, get down on the ground on our knees and like, oh, there you are. I see you, buddy. It took a minute. It took a minute. But every day is full of glory. And Jesus, for 18 years, the Bible is silent. doesn't even tell us what he looks like, by the way, which is crazy. doesn't tell us what his eyes look like. I mean, the normal human Jesus tells us what it looks like when he shows up in glory, but doesn't tell us his eye color. Man, if I wrote the Bible, I would have told you every detail of his haircut and his clothes and everything. Did he wear Nikes or Reeboks? I'd tell you all that stuff, whatever the sandal equivalent was. in the. But they didn't care about that. It was just enough for them to say he was normal. He was a normal human. Nothing special about him. That's really the point they're trying to make. Nothing special about him. You'd never know. Regular human life is already heavenly. What? All right, let's shut this down. Oh, yeah, I'll read you Psalm 32 as the ending. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I'm going to confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there's still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The Lord says, listen guys, I want you to hear this as to you. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you I will watch over you. Don't be like a senseless horse or a mule that needs a bit and a bridle to keep it under control. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey Him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. My summary statement is, Sin and misery run together just as surely as happiness and holiness. Let's pray. Jesus, you're so good to us. Lord, we're not not asking to, to fix everything today. We know we're not home right now. But we're asking, God, that you'd help us Know what you're asking us to do that will help us get just just a little closer. Something that we can do. Something we can do. To give you a foothold. To get some momentum. To let a little more of your love in. 
Just take us a little further today, a little further today than yesterday. Just take us a little deeper, a little deeper, God. Just the next step, God. Show us the next step. You said you're going to lead us with your eye on us. You said you surround us. You said you take care of us. And you do love us. You love us perfectly. Your, your heart for us is so big. Your heart for us is so trustworthy. You're so strong. You are not holding our sins against us. Sometimes we do it. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we're not sure about us. But you have actually already made up your mind about us. We're all the way in and you're not changing your mind. We're all the way in and you're not changing your mind. He who began a good work will be faithful to bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. God, we ask that in this world, we would be found to be, to be in that process with you so that we'd become like you, so that we would not look like the world because we're not feasting on what the world's feasting on. We love you, Father. Amen.